In the late hours of December 6, 1991, firefighters would stumble upon a tragic scene. They thought it was just a fire at an empty yogurt shop, until they discovered more inside the wreckage. Four teenage girls, naked, burned, gagged, and brutally murdered. There are currently 19,000 unsolved murders in the state of Texas, and that number continues to grow. But one of the most notable among those is what we're going to be talking about today. It's what's been dubbed the Yogurt Shop Murders. Thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so by becoming a member on my Patreon and or leaving a rating on whatever streaming site you're listening to. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Jennifer Anna Harbison was born on May 9th, 1974, to Barbara and Mike Harbison. Her sister, Sarah Louise, would be born two years later on October 28th, 1976. At the ages of five and two, Barbara left her high school sweetheart, took her girls, and permanently settled in Austin, Texas. The following year, she met Dell computer technician Frank Cerucci, and the two wed in 1980. By 1991, Jennifer was a busy senior at Sydney Lanier High School. She ran on the varsity track team, and was a key member of the FFA, Future Farmers of America. Jennifer was president of her school chapter and vice president of the district. The day before the murders, her name was printed in the local paper, stating that she and others represented Texas at the National Floriculture Contest in November. The competition rated skills around flower arrangement, identifying plants, and handling customer complaints. The team placed ninth nationally, but Jennifer placed above that at eighth individually. After graduating eighth grade at St. Louis Catholic School, Sarah joined her sister at Lanier. As a freshman, she established herself as a leader. Her principal would later say that she was assertive, enthusiastic, and clearly a kid who would have made her mark on the place if she'd only been given the chance. Sarah was just as busy as her sister. She played basketball, volleyball, and was an active member in the student council and FFA. For months, she and Jennifer had been raising lambs together, with plans to enter them into the Austin Livestock Show. Every morning, they'd wake up early to feed and care for them, and then rush back home to shower and get ready for school. The sisters both also had new boyfriends in 1991. Jennifer had only been dating Sammy a few weeks, but he'd already given her his class ring. They were planning to go to the same college together and hoping Sammy would get a scholarship to play baseball. On June 26th, Jennifer started her new job at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. She'd been recommended by Eliza, 
who'd been working there since January. Eliza Thomas was born on May 16, 1974. After her parents divorced in 81, she and her younger sister, Sonora, went back and forth. Eventually, at age 14, they let Eliza decide for herself who she wanted to live with. Initially, she chose her father, but in July of 91, she changed her mind and moved in with her mother, Maria. Sonora described her sister as popular, friendly, and chatty. According to her mother, Eliza wanted to be a model. Apparently, she used to follow one of her uncles around and beg him to photograph her. She also had a book collection comparable to that of some bookstores. At some point, she attended McCallum High School, but ended up transferring to Lanier High. Eliza loved drawing, writing, and like the Harbison sisters, was active in the FFA. According to the principal, Eliza was in a program that focused on agriculture mechanics, and in that program, she excelled at welding and repairing small engines. Shortly after the murders, Eliza's mother gave an interview and said this. She loved tiny little knickknacks, and as you can see, there's lipsticks there, and she, she's got tons and tons more. She used to love, she had the be most beautiful mouth, you know, so she would always, I would buy her lots of lipsticks, and she would buy lots of lipstick. Eliza was fanatic about her complexion. She would wash her face two or three times a day. She always put her hair way up, you know, and then she'd have clips and then wash her face real good at night, and I can just still see her doing it. I guess the thing that I miss the very most is when she and her friend Michelle would go out dancing, and Michelle would come over and they'd spend about an hour or so getting ready, you know, and, and then they had this, this ritual of taking pictures of each other. They'd put their arms around each other and then hold the camera. One would hold the camera and click, and then the next one would do it. Amy Ayers was born on January 31, 1978, in Johnson County, Texas. Because she spent most of her early childhood at a ranch, Amy learned to ride horses by the age of three, and by all accounts, she was really good at it. Everything about Amy screamed classic cowgirl. She wore cowboy hats to school, and sometimes took her pigs that she was raising for a walk, on leashes like they were dogs. In 1991, at 13 years old, Amy was enjoying her last year at Burnett Middle School. Stuffed animals still covered her bed, and posters of country music star George Strait were taped to her walls. Despite her age, though, she was allowed to become an active member in the FFA, at Lanier High School, and it was through this membership that Amy became best friends with Sarah Harbison. They were in different grades and didn't get to see each other too often, but on Friday, December 6th, 1991, they managed to make some plans. On Jennifer's way to work, she dropped off her sister and Amy at the North Cross Mall. It was the first time they'd been allowed to hang out at the mall alone. Meanwhile, Jennifer and Eliza started their shifts at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. When 9 p.m. rolled around, Jennifer picked Sarah and Amy up from the mall and drove them back to the shop. 
She and Eliza weren't done with their shifts yet, but with the help of Amy and Sarah, they could finish their closing duties a lot quicker and get out of there. Around 9.30, Eliza's mother, Maria, walked in. Eliza was on the phone, trying to convince her little sister to ride her bike over to the shop. It wasn't far. She ended up having to get back to work, so she handed the phone to her mother. According to Maria, the phone rang minutes later, and Eliza ran to answer it, knowing it was Sammy calling to make breakfast plans for tomorrow morning. Shortly before 10 p.m., an older, former military policeman by the name of Daryl Croft entered the shop. He had just finished dinner at Fuddruckers with two women and was placing their orders while they waited outside. When Daryl entered the shop, he took notice of who was around him. Jennifer and Eliza were behind the counter. Maria was still standing near the cash register. A young couple in a booth another couple looking at a large menu on the wall, and one odd-looking man. Daryl took particular notice of this guy and was able to recall specific details about him later. He was white, looked to be in his mid-twenties, mid-sized, possibly six feet tall, wearing a green jacket, maybe some type of military jacket. Daryl thought that there was something off about him, especially when he asked Daryl a series of weird questions, like, was that his car parked out front? Was he a police officer? And if not, what does he do? Daryl owned a security company, and because of that, his car is often confused with the police officers. It's a tan station wagon with a rack of blue lights on the roof. Daryl told the man that he just owned a security company, and then went up to the counter to place his order. By the time he was finished, the man was walking through the back doors to the back room. Daryl didn't think customers were allowed back there, so he asked Eliza where that guy was going. Eliza told him that he was just going to the bathroom, which weren't really open to the public, but he really had to go, so she let him. Before Daryl could get another look at the strange man, his yogurt was finished, so he left the store. Maria left just minutes after him. Moments later, James Thomas and his wife entered the store, Eliza's father and stepmother. James recalled two girls sharing a pizza, presumably Amy and Sarah, but never saw a man in a green jacket. No other witnesses would recall ever seeing a man in a green jacket, except Daryl Croft. For roughly 15 minutes, the two chatted with Eliza about an economics class, and then they left. Around 10.30 p.m., Tim Steiker and Margaret Sheehan left a movie theater and headed to the yogurt shop. When they entered, they noticed only two additional customers in the shop, two large men in the booth closest to the cash register on the far left. They were apparently leaning over the table towards each other, possibly whispering things. The larger one was in a beige, padded jacket. The man across from him was thinner, with light brown hair. Eliza was alone behind the counter, and Jennifer was starting their closing duties, wiping down the tables, turning the chairs over, and refilling the napkin holders. 
After ordering a small cup of yogurt, Margaret sat down in the booth next to the two men. Tim was still deciding on his order. Eventually, he decided on a large vanilla yogurt with hot fudge and joined Margaret in the booth. At that point, it's presumed Sarah and Amy were in the back room helping with closing duties as well. The couple hadn't seen them, and a pizza box would be found on a table in the back. Margaret recalled listening to Jennifer and Eliza's conversation as they closed. They discussed their plans for the following week and talked about a mutual friend. Apparently, Margaret felt as if the men in the booth were listening in as well. She, nor Tim, could recall the men eating or drinking anything. It seemed as if they were just sitting there, waiting silently. Margaret wanted to finish her yogurt inside, but Tim finally convinced her to leave, because it's obvious that the girls were cleaning up. As they left, she checked her watch. It was 10.47 p.m. Soon after they left, it's presumed that one of the girls locked the front door and flipped the sign to read as closed. The shop's key would be found still inside the lock. This was customary for the girls as they were closing so that they didn't lose the keys. The last person to reportedly place their eyes on the yogurt shop was a woman named Kate McClung. About 10 minutes past 11 p.m., she walked past the shop and noticed that the lights were on. The shop was supposed to be closed by 11. What happened between Margaret and Tim leaving and the moment police arrived is a matter of speculation to this day. December 6, 1991, at roughly 11.47 p.m., an officer noticed fire and smoke rising from a building in a strip mall. Surely it was just an electrical fire, or perhaps someone left a machine on after closing up. No one expected to find anything interesting. It was past midnight, after all. Most people were at home or asleep. Four units of the Austin Fire Department were dispatched to the location, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, at 2945 West Anderson Lane. After the front door was pried open with a crowbar, two firemen in full gear entered the scorching heat. From the outside, the windows were black, and visibility inside wasn't much better. Eventually, they put the source of the fire out and were left with some smoldering parts here and there. The smoke was still fading, and throwing water on fire creates another visibility issue, steam. Suddenly, one fireman tapped the other on the shoulder and pointed something out. He was questioning his own eyes. Is that a foot? This discovery startled the both of them. No one was supposed to be in here. At the back exit, they opened the doors, so the remaining smoke and steam could escape. The back doors being unlocked came as a surprise as well. They re-entered the building for a moment, to make sure that their eyes hadn't deceived them. Without their masks, they quickly walked around the scene. And that's when they saw the lower portion of a second body. Immediately, one of the men informed emergency dispatch. They'd found two bodies, probably arson and homicide. Everything inside the yogurt shop was charred, melted, 
and destroyed. Metal was contorted, walls were peeling. From a distance, it was just layers of black, dusty mass. To perish in a fire is to die one of the most excruciating deaths of them all. The most painful part takes place first. The thinnest layer of skin, the epidermis, is burned away quickly. Below that is the dermis, the thickest layer of skin holding your nerve endings, sweat glands, and hair follicles. The dermis shrinks until it splits open, upon which fat and tissue begin to leak out. At this point, pain is non-existent, because there's no nerves left to feel it. Organs shrink, the heart speeds up, and hypovolemic shock sets in. And because the body can't pump blood and oxygen any longer, the heart stops. All of this happens within minutes, depending on the severity of the fire. In most cases, a corpse will have what's called a boxer's pose, flexed elbows, knees, and closed fists. When the air had finally cleared and it was safe for investigators to enter, this is what they found. And for this description, I'm going to use case text from an appeal made to the state of Texas. The space occupied by the yogurt shop was deep and narrow. The front two-thirds of the space was the public area, tables, and a counter on which the cash register was located. On the night in question, the chairs had been stacked on the tables as part of the closing routine. Behind the counter was a wall with a door on the right-hand side that opened into the rear third of the shop. A person walking through this door entered a preparation area with a sink and table. The cash register drawer was found on this table. On the right wall of this area were the bathrooms. On the opposite wall was a walk-in cooler. Behind the cooler, in the left rear corner of the shop, was a storage area with shelves full of paper goods and cleaning materials. In the right rear corner was the shop's office, the door of which was closed. Amy Ayer's body was found on the floor of the preparation area. She had a ligature around her neck, and it was determined at autopsy that she had been manually strangled, but not fatally. She also had a bruise on her lower lip. She was naked, and a blouse tied into a knot was found beneath her body. Ayers had two contact gunshot wounds, one on the top left side of her head and the other behind her left ear. The first of these was caused by a 22 caliber bullet, which did not penetrate the skull. The medical examiner testified that this shot was not fatal. The second fatal gunshot wound was caused by a 380 caliber bullet that passed through the brain and exited through Ayer's right cheek. The other three bodies were found on the floor of the storage area, covered with rubble from the fire. Eliza Thomas's body was lying on top of Sarah Harbison's body, and Jennifer Harbison's body was lying beside them. They, too, were naked. The evidence suggests that the three bodies had been stacked, and that Jennifer's body had rolled off the pile during the fire. All three bodies were badly burned and charred, with Jennifer having been most severely damaged. Thomas's hands were tied behind her with a brassiere, 
and she had a gag in her mouth. Sarah Harvison's hands were tied behind her with panties, and she also had been gagged. There was physical evidence that she had been vaginally assaulted, probably with the handle of an ice cream scoop found on the floor between her legs. Jennifer Harbison's hands were behind her back, as if they had been tied, but no binding was recovered. She had a ligature around her neck. Each of these girls had been killed by a single 22 caliber contact gunshot to the back of the head. Four 22 caliber bullets were recovered from the bodies during autopsy. Due to the condition of the bullets, it was not possible to determine if all four had been fired from the same weapon. A 380 caliber bullet and a 380 caliber shell casing were recovered at the scene of the murders. The unusual rifling pattern on the 380 bullet led a firearms expert to conclude that it was fired from an AMT backup, a small silver-gray semi-automatic pistol. End quote. Amy was the only victim who wasn't severely burned. The other three girls were charred and unrecognizable, bald and faceless from the intense heat. Immediately, it was apparent that these girls hadn't died accidentally as a result of the fire. They'd been executed and burned to destroy evidence. Investigators and family members of the victims would quickly learn the where, the when, and the how. The who and the why could not be answered. 30 years later, that still hasn't changed. For this next part, I'm going to summarize key events that took place over the next eight years. By December 9th, police determined that more than one killer had been involved. There was no forced entry, and the motive may have been robbery in relation to buying drugs. But that was just a theory. In reality, they had no concrete suspects or motives. Investigators were scrambling. Two days later, Travis County Judge John Weiser sealed the autopsy reports of all the girls. This was so that the media and the public couldn't get a hold of the information, because that could be crucial in determining who the killers are. If every detail of the crime is out in the air immediately, then anyone could say that they were the killer and give those details. And it turns out, this move would come in handy just before Christmas Eve, when a teenage girl and her boyfriend confessed to the murders. We don't know their identities, probably because they might have been underage, but apparently the girl sent a cryptic message to Crime Stoppers, saying that she saw certain things while inside the yogurt shop's parking lot. After this, she talked to police and refused to give her boyfriend's name. And she did this for a while, so this led them to believe they actually caught the killers. But then, the couple started giving information that didn't match the scene. Sergeant Jones, the first homicide detective on the case, told a local newspaper this, Confessions sound good, but that's not the standard by which charges are filed. If we have the right person, we will charge them. A confession alone isn't enough to get a conviction on. 
The killers have to tell us certain things that only the killers would know. That didn't happen in this case. They started telling us stuff that wasn't true. They were giving information they had heard off the street. It's been up and down, up and down. We think we have something. We call out all the troops. And then it's a dead end. By this point in the investigation, the couple was included in a list of 25 suspects that police had ruled out. A week before their confessions, on the 17th, authorities released a psychological profile of the killers. I couldn't find the exact profile, but I did find an ad placed in the newspaper by the parents of the victims. It was printed on January 26, 1992, so a little over a month after the murders, and it seems like it took info directly from the killer's profile. That's what it seems like to me at least, but you can be the judge. This is what it says. In bold lettering, the title reads, Do you know the man and his accomplices who killed our daughters? Below that is a photo of each victim side by side. It goes on to say, This man and his accomplices killed these four girls. At the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt store on West Anderson Lane on December 6, 1991. According to the police, this man is probably white and between the ages of 17 to 28. If he is older, he still acts like a young man and seems socially and emotionally immature. He's probably a high school dropout and an underachiever. He was probably a major discipline problem at school and is likewise probably a poor, unreliable employee who misses work frequently, if he is employed at all. If he does have a job, he probably did not come to work the following day, and possibly for days after December 6th. The killer has no remorse or concern that he killed these girls. However, at the time, he is under tremendous stress and fear that he will be discovered and arrested because of this crime which probably did not go as he planned. This man is very concerned about the loyalty of his partners because he knows that they regret their involvement in this crime. The killer and his partners are probably sticking close together to be sure that none of them talk about this crime. As the pressure on them mounts from the continuing investigation, they may become extremely anxious and watchful of each other, causing further stress on the relationship. The stress may lead to violence. The killer and his accomplices may have temporarily left town soon after December 6th in order to avoid the tremendous stress of this situation. They may have recently returned to Austin. The killer has an explosive personality and angers easily. He seemingly becomes much more angry than a situation calls for. This is especially so when he has been consuming alcohol and or drugs. He is impulsive and acts out without considering the consequences of his acts. He would probably only confront another individual if surrounded by his buddies, and only acts boldly if he is in a sure-win situation. This man probably lives in North Austin. He frequents the area of the yogurt shop and West Anderson Lane, and is familiar with the shops and streets of the area. He probably lives with some older person 
such as a parent on whom he is financially dependent. He may have a girlfriend who is younger and less adequate than himself. If so, he probably abuses this woman. After reading this, I can't help but think about Richard Speck, who was behind the Chicago nurse murders of 1966. I talked about it a few episodes ago. This case is similar in a lot of ways, so I just think it's interesting that this profile also describes the traits of Speck. Criminal psychology is fascinating in that way. Anyways, moving on. In January of 1992, a task force was formed to investigate the yogurt shop murders. That included Austin police and the FBI. Billboards were placed all over town, showing the teens' faces, and in bold lettering, who killed these girls. A $25,000 reward was being offered to anyone with information leading to a conviction. So, unfortunately, when it comes to brutal unsolved murders, specifically during the late 80s to mid-90s in the South, sometimes the blame will be pushed on local, quote-unquote, devil worshippers. And that instance briefly occurred in the yogurt shop murders. On February 26th, police arrested 36-year-old Claire LeVay on suspicion of grave robbing. The incident had taken place three months ago, but tips led them to her apartment where they were able to carry out a search warrant. Police busting down the door and into her apartment is actually featured in the 48 Hours documentary CBS would release a month later. Police would say that Claire wasn't a suspect, but at one point she clearly was, because a write-up about the show said this. The program takes a look at some of the suspects, including a group of devil worshippers and Claire LeVay a high priestess of the occult who was believed to have human bones stashed all over her house. But the bones turned out to be animal remains, and LeVay was dismissed. What led to this arrest was an acquaintance telling police that there were four wax-covered heads and one torso with the head attached in her home, as well as another acquaintance telling police They had seen a suitcase with a human skull and a bag of human bones. Claire and a woman named Sarita, who was apparently an artist from L.A., were arrested and charged with burglary. And this is what police found in their apartment, according to a local paper at the time. Hundreds of animal bones, 133 books, a brass urn, and several religious figures. Most of the confiscated books deal with the subjects such as the occult, Satanism, witchcraft, voodoo, psychic sciences, and crimes, but they also included the Bible, Miss Manners, and Shakespeare. They also found what they called satanic cult paraphernalia, including a nail-riddled plastic heart, paintings, metal crosses, and black-dressed mannequins splashed with red paint. Some quotes from people printed in this paper say that the women were known as witches that frequented the cemetery where the remains were taken. 
One friend that had known Claire for four years, however, is quoted saying the opposite. She's not a devil worshipper or anything. She's just into that image. She's just a little eccentric. End quote. Claire LeVay wasn't the only innocent person to be hounded by police because of their dark, unique interests. The harassment was actually so severe that it would make the first page of the local newspaper at one point. A little less than a month after Claire's arrest, the Austin American Statesman printed this headline. Dressed in black and feeling harassed. Below that, a group of young white teens dressed in black with your typical early 90s goth appearances are shown. In part, the story reads, A task force investigating the murders of four teenage girls in a North Austin yogurt shop has concentrated in recent weeks on a local clique of self-professed Satanists and occult devotees. Although police have denied having evidence linking the crime to satanic or cult rituals, several teenage and young adult members of this loosely-knit group say they have been questioned repeatedly about the slayings, about possible suspects, and about Satanism. They say they have been strip-searched, given polygraph tests, and had their living quarters searched. End quote. Oh, and police called this group People in Black, or PIBS for short. I searched this phrase in Google, and it was not giving me more info on this, so I guess the phrase has died since then, or it was very local to Austin, Texas. If you know anything about that, let me know. This is how a writer for the paper describes the People in Black, which is kind of humorous to look back on 30 years later as someone who partially dresses like this. The people in black emerge in force around midnight, wearing black garters and black boots, nose rings and leather and heavy eyeliner, layered and lavished, black upon black. It suits them well, the color of darkness. They number in the hundreds. These teenagers and post-teenagers, kindred spirits, sharing a rebellious anti-establishment, I am different attitude. The gothic crowd, they are called on occasion, or the industrial youth movement, or simply pibs, the people in black, end quote. Now that you know who the people in black are, this is a quote from an 18-year-old girl that was targeted by police because she was in this group. Three officers showed up at my apartment at three o'clock in the morning and insisted that me and my two roommates go down to the station. They were accusing a friend of all kinds of witchcraft. End quote. The harassment stretched to great lengths for at least one person that we know of, a 21-year-old Satanist that went by the name of Drake. He was interviewed as well and stated that police accused him of the murders, but that they couldn't prove it. Drake had been arrested six days after the killings, for violating his probation. Police then got samples of his hair and semen, which is definitely not standard procedure. Drake also underwent a polygraph test when he was questioned. After all of that, police were finally convinced that he wasn't a suspect. 
Now we're going to diverge from the satanic panic part of this case and back to the timeline. On March 16, 1992, police released a sketch of a man seen parked in an older white car outside of the yogurt shop on the night of the murders. This sketch was very similar to the drawing of a suspect involved in a separate incident in which a woman was kidnapped and assaulted. Two weeks later, authorities arrested 17-year-old Armando Razo. He was one of the men police had tips on. He fit the sketch, and he drove a 77 white Pontiac. He was eventually released and marked off the list of suspects. And there's not a lot of information at all on this man in the papers, other than the fact that he was arrested in connection to the murders and released shortly after. Four months after Armando's arrest, authorities started searching for three men connected to a November abduction and sexual assault. This is the same crime I mentioned a moment ago. So police were now looking for three men instead of this one man that the victim described. Those men had been indicted on the charges and their pictures were broadcast on America's Most Wanted on August 7th, 1992. Dozens of tips came in and eventually two of the men sought for questioning were arrested by Mexican feds. In October, the men captured were identified as 28-year-old Periferio Villa Saavedra and 26-year-old Alberto Jimenez Cortez. Cortez is the suspect that resembled the composite drawing of the man seen outside the yogurt shop on December 6th. And Saavedra, it turned out, was a former delivery man and delivered to the yogurt shop. Shortly after their arrest, they confessed to the slangs. And everyone wishes that the story ended here, but within a few days, they would both retract their statements and say that Mexican authorities had tortured them into confessing. Police don't have enough evidence to charge them, and eventually they're ruled out as suspects. In January of the following year, it's revealed that the girl's parents filed a lawsuit against the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt chain, the owner, and its manager. The suit stated that the owners of the store knew about security issues, but quote, they did nothing to protect these children. It also states that the owners should have increased security, knowing of the repeated crimes in the area. Surrounding stores had installed security systems, and some had even hired security guards. By the second anniversary of the killings, December 6, 1993, the reward had increased to $125,000. Police had investigated over 5,000 leads. Saavedra and Cortez remained suspects for Austin police, but there were no updates on their possible involvement. Barbara, the mother of Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, gave this statement to reporters. A lot of people think this is solved because we caught the guys in Mexico but we want people to know that there is still a $125,000 reward. We want to encourage people to give us a Christmas present. And the Christmas present we want is for people to call the Austin Police Department if they have any lead they didn't call in before, or if they didn't get a return call from the police. Maybe something fell through the cracks, 
We're not the same people that we were. We were very busy people. We had teenagers. They were involved in everything in their schools. My husband and I both worked. We were being taxi cabs, going to athletics, always a function we were going to with them. Our whole life revolved around them. Our whole life now is revolving around their memory. Pam, the mother of the youngest victim, Amy Ayers, had lost a little hope by this time. Quote, I used to think they are going to solve it. Now, I don't think so. We're getting too far down the road. Unfortunately, if it is solved, I think it's going to be by something else happening to somebody to tie it in. We'll never be the same. That's the one thing I think about, too. Whoever did this is still out there, probably still enjoying themselves, because evidently, they don't have a conscience. They're able to live with what they've done, and they have ruined my family. I appreciate all the support we've had. There's somebody out there that still knows something, and we wish they'd come forward. Even if they don't think it's significant, it might be the very thing that would break the case open for us. By the second week of January, a settlement came in the lawsuit against ICBY. The owners agreed to not admit liability in exchange for $12 million split between each of the victim's families. The lawyer for the family said that they planned on using a large portion of the funds to start a nonprofit. They did so in 95 and named the company We Will Not Forget S-A-J-E, the initials of their daughters. I'm not sure if this organization is still running because I couldn't find anything about them online, not even a website. It's also possible that they merged with another organization. December 6th, 1996. The fifth year anniversary of the murders makes the front page of the Austin American Statesman. A black and white photo shows Texas inmates crowded around a small television. It's playing a Crime Stoppers video about the yogurt shop murders with the hopes of an inmate willing to come forward, rat someone out, in exchange for a hefty reward. The video was being played in every prison across the state to around 130,000 inmates. No one comes forward. Police are still saying that there isn't enough evidence to clear or charge the two men sitting in a Mexican prison. They can't be extradited back to Texas because of Mexico's laws. The parents of the teens are frustrated that the case has been handed over to new investigators and that they still haven't been given all the details about the murders. The siblings of Eliza Thomas and Amy Ayers are interviewed. Sonora Thomas is 18 years old now. She was 13 at the time of the murders. She's attending college in Boston. She told a reporter, My sister and I made plans to always live in the same town and always be good friends and have children who play together. That's all been taken away. When I heard my sister was dead, I stayed up all night long and kept watching the clock and every hour would go by, and I couldn't believe that life was still going on. I thought everything would just stop at the moment I found out. 
The last two years of her life, Eliza took me with her everywhere. She saw how I adored her and thought it was cool to have a fan club. You know, Eliza would be 22 and out of college. I miss everything about her. Arguing about taking up too much time in the bathroom or having her yell at me for waking her up at 8 on Sunday mornings and being able to get advice from her. I don't think there was one day when I said, this is reality, this is my life. You just keep doing it every day, every day, every day, and before you know it, five years has gone by. I still sometimes feel like I'm in a daze, like my life seems so uncomprehensible, I can't understand it. End quote. Sean Ayers is 24 years old now. He told the reporter, One day I was a brother, and the next day I wasn't. I still feel like a brother, though, because I think about her every day. Her picture is the first thing I look at every morning and every night. It's hard to go on without feeling guilty. Because of her death, I've been cheated out of a lot of happiness. We did everything together. She touched a lot of people in her 13 years. Imagine how many people she would have touched the rest of her life. In the summer of the following year, a local, state, and federal task force is created to investigate the murders. They would disband just a year later, on March 3rd, 1998. The case is handed back to local police. Police eventually get a lead, and in August of 1999, they assign six investigators and one sergeant to the case. Other agencies pitch in as well. Two months later, on October 6th, a major break in the case comes. Four new suspects are arrested and charged with capital murder. These are their names. Maurice Pierce, Michael Scott, Forrest Wellborn, and Robert Springsteen. Maurice and Forrest were the only juveniles in 1991. So, how did this major arrest come about? Well, eight days after the murders in 1991, police arrested 16-year-old Maurice for unlawfully carrying a gun, a 22 caliber revolver to be exact, the same caliber weapon used to kill the girls. On that day, he and Forrest went to the North Cross Mall, and that's where they were caught. This was the same mall Sarah and Amy visited before they were murdered. Maurice told authorities a story that made absolutely no sense. To sum it up, he said that Forrest had gone off with a group of skinheads and had returned with a scratch on his neck and smelled of hairspray. Forrest told Maurice that he'd done something bad, and that he'd wanted to do it again. Investigators asked who else he had hung out with earlier in that night, and that's when Maurice mentioned Robert and Michael. Those two had recently started living together in a condo. Maurice was the only one with the previous record, and to investigators, he was the ringleader. At 15 years old, he was arrested twice for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, 
His own father reported him one time, and the other arrest came when he drove off in someone's car after they left their keys inside. He was also suspended from school for fighting and pulling out a knife, as well as stealing fire extinguishers. All of that occurred in 1991. The following year, Maurice got in trouble several times. He jumped the fence of an apartment complex while armed with a knife, was caught with a stereo that they believed was stolen, and threatened a student on school property, allegedly with a bomb, and assaulted someone. Each of these teens were brought in for questioning in 1991, but their stories about what happened on the night of December 6th didn't match up. Robert said he snuck into a midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and that Michael had to wait in the lobby until 2 a.m. because he failed to get in. Michael said that Maurice had driven them to a party, then dropped them back off at their condo around 10.30 p.m. They watched a movie and fell asleep. Maurice reported that he partied, let Forrest borrow his gun, and afterwards Forrest came back, smelled like hairspray, and said he wanted to kill more girls. Maurice got his gun back, went home, and went to sleep. Forrest never gave a story to police. The cops then convinced Maurice to put a wire and implicate his friend. The way that conversation went, though, it's clear that Forrest had no idea what Maurice was talking about. So, it was dropped. Investigators in 1991 didn't fully clear them as suspects, but they put their files to the side and pursued other leads. Now, their names were back on the minds of new investigators, potentially because they'd run out of suspects and they were revisiting old files. They either truly believed that these guys were the culprits, they were getting desperate, or a mixture of both. And I need to add this important detail. The gun that Maurice was caught with was kept by police and tested by forensic experts, at least twice. And both times, it was found that the gun was most likely not used in the murders. Even though Maurice and Forrest were the first one to come into the radar for police, it would actually be Michael and Robert that investigators would extract confessions from. And the technique they used to do this is important. It's called the Reed Technique. It was developed by John Reed in the 50s. He was a former Chicago police officer and polygraph expert. This man got confessions in 300-plus murder cases, basically unheard of. And it wasn't necessarily because he was catching all the right bad guys, and they gave in to him because he was the best cop of all time. It's because of this method. If you asked yourself right now if you would confess to a murder you didn't commit, you'd probably say no. But that's not really the case for a lot of people when they are interrogated using the Reed method. According to data from the Innocence Project, 27% of wrongful convictions involve false confessions. In 2015, a psychologist named Julia Shaw conducted a study where she interrogated 30 college-age subjects over three one-hour sessions. She convinced 21 of them that they'd committed a crime when they were 12 years old by planting false memories and other mental tactics, a crime that they had never committed, but they admitted to. I think that's an important concept to understand because no one thinks they'd confess to something they didn't do, but statistics show that you probably might. 
John Jones was the first investigator on the case, and he heavily scrutinized this new investigator, Paul Johnson. According to Jones, when he was on the case, they'd gotten 50 total confessions. Paul Johnson, however, was getting confessions and running straight towards a conviction, even if the evidence didn't support that theory. The lengths that these officers went to get a confession from these two men is absolutely appalling, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Michael Scott's interrogation went something like this. On the first day, they grilled him for nearly 12 hours in a 7 by 10 foot room in the Austin Police Department. Investigators repeatedly told Michael that Robert and Maurice blamed him for the murders, but Robert and Maurice never said that. The officers could lie all they wanted to, though. After several hours, Michael asked for a lawyer. The investigators left and then returned and brought up a new subject. They would do this any time Michael asked for a lawyer, which is incredibly illegal. The most shocking part of Michael's interrogation was a photo that would later surface on the internet. But one of the first places it appears, or is at least described, is in a January 2001 issue of Texas Monthly. This is how the author, Michael Hall, describes the image. It's a gun, all right, and Detective Robert Merrill is holding it to the back of Mike Scott's head. The detective is standing as if braced for action. The suspect is sitting at a small round table, his left hand resting on the white surface. From the camera's angle, up high in the cramped interrogation room, you can see Scott's receding hairline. His body language says he is sitting perfectly still. This is the second day of interrogation, and Merrill and a series of other awesome policemen have been yelling and cursing at him for hours. Their frustration is perhaps understandable. This is no ordinary interrogation. Scott, they believe, has details about the biggest and most horrific case in the Austin Police Department's history the slaughter of four teenage girls at an I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt store on December 6, 1991. End quote. If you believed that this man was innocent and you saw that, it would be very horrifying to see. But this case was so emotional for everyone, and Michael Scott had confessed, so everyone thought that he kind of deserved it, and no one lifted a finger. The interrogation of Robert Springsteen goes the same. He complies for questioning, goes down to the station, unaware of what he's going to be questioned for. He's polite and answers everything that they ask, and he says he's never stepped foot into the yogurt shop. Robert doesn't remember what he did on the night of December 6th, and the officers start to confuse him. They plant false memories, and by the end, Robert says it's possible that he may have killed those girls. Eventually, police will catch him on videotape saying that he did rape 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Before I continue with what happened to Michael and Robert, I'm going to sum up the endings to Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn. In December of 1999, a judge ruled that they could both be tried as adults, even though they were 16 and 15 at the time of the murders. In June of the following year, a grand jury declines to indict Wellborn on murder charges. A judge dismisses the charges, and Wellborn is free to go. He was actually the only one who'd been able to post bail, 
so the three other suspects were sitting in a jail while awaiting their trials. Maurice actually sat in jail for over three years. It wouldn't be until January of 2003 that the charges against Maurice would be dismissed and he would be released. Three plus years wasted in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. His reputation was ruined, of course, because a lot of people think he just got away with it. So now that Maurice and Forrest were out of the picture, investigators weren't letting go of the two men they had extracted confessions from. In December of 99, a grand jury indicts Michael and Robert on four counts of capital murder. Robert is specifically tried for the death of Amy Ayers because police have him on tape admitting that he raped her. In June of 2001, he's sentenced to death for her murder. The only evidence police had against him was a confession. There was zero physical evidence tying him to the murders. In September of the following year, Michael Scott is found guilty for the murder of Amy Ayers. He's sentenced to life in prison. Like Robert, the only evidence against him was his taped confession. There was no physical evidence against him. No DNA, no fingerprints, nothing. Years pass, and by June of 2007, Robert and Michael's appeals have reached the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They throw out both of their convictions, ruling that their confessions were improperly used against each other. Specifically, their Sixth Amendment rights were violated when the men weren't allowed to cross-examine each other during their trials. They both remained in jail, and county prosecutors started building a case against them to retry them for the murders. In the spring of 2007, when prepping for the retrials, the prosecutors thought DNA evidence would surely seal the deal on their previous convictions. They hired a lab in Virginia and sent six items pulled from Amy Ayers. The lab specifically tested for YSTR, meaning male DNA. This testing wasn't available during the first trial, and it's important because it rules out female DNA which would largely be found on and inside the female body. It would take a whole year until the defense team would learn the results of those tests. The lab found a full male DNA profile taken from a vaginal swab of Amy Ayers. That DNA was not a match to any of the four men previously accused. And it was 100% not a match to Robert and Michael, who were sitting in prison for the murders. Robert was facing execution. On June 19, 2009, a bail reduction hearing was held for Robert. This is some of the evidence his lawyer entered into court records. 1. DNA from an unknown male in Amy Ayers. A full YSTR profile from a swab taken at the scene, as also reported by the DA's results from Fairfax. All four suspects arrested for the murders were excluded. The same DNA found in a seen vaginal sample from Amy Ayers was also found in Jennifer Harbison's sample from the medical examiner's office, in addition to the DNA of Jennifer's boyfriend, Sammy Buchanan, all four suspects excluded. 
DNA from Sammy Buchanan and another male found in Sarah Harbison. A third male's DNA found on clothing used to bind Eliza Thomas's wrists. DNA from Sammy Buchanan found in both Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, indicating the likelihood that the same man raped both sisters, transferring his own DNA as well as Buchanan's to Sarah after raping Jennifer. End quote. Five days later, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen were released from prison after a decade behind bars. And they were only released not just because of the new evidence, but because the prosecution wasn't ready for their scheduled trial, probably because they didn't have the evidence to keep them behind bars. Months later, in late October, the district attorney's office finally made an announcement. They were dismissing all charges against Robert and Michael. Shortly after that, investigators told the press that Robert, Michael, and Maurice were still being investigated as suspects despite DNA clearing all of them. So, to wrap up everything that we just heard, four teens were brutally murdered, and then four innocent men were put behind bars for it. One of them was almost put to death. They were all freed, and their charges were dismissed, but the case remains unsolved. The third and final part of this story is going to be the happenings from 2010 to present day. 12 years. In December of 2010, news broke that 35-year-old Maurice Pierce had been shot dead by police. Since 2008, he'd apparently had three run-ins with police and was awaiting trial on charges of evading arrest and aggravated assault on a public servant. This is apparently what happened on the night Maurice was killed, according to the officers involved. Two cops witnessed a car run a stop sign and attempted to pull them over. This happened shortly before 11 p.m. Maurice eventually stopped the car and fled on foot. Officer Wilson caught him in a backyard nearby and attempted to tase him. That's apparently when Maurice grabbed a knife from Wilson's belt and slashed him, resulting in a cut to his right ear, trachea, and corroded artery. Wilson fired one shot killing Maurice. Wilson survived the injury, and apparently, it was lucky that he did, because he could have easily bled out. It's not entirely known why Maurice ran from the officers, but his lawyer gave some insight to a possibility. Quote, He had been in jail for such a long time on those cases, that every time he gets detained, he is traumatized, and runs, because he is so scared of the police. End quote. In the summer of 2017, a Texas Supreme Court rejected Robert's appeal for innocence. Even though he was a free man and had no charges against him, Robert's reputation was ruined, and he hadn't been declared innocent by the courts. The Supreme Court argued that he couldn't meet the definition of actual innocence under state law because he hadn't been pardoned and because prosecutors didn't agree that he was innocent of the crime. If Robert was declared innocent, it would make him eligible for $720,000 of state funding for wrongful convictions. The state almost put him to death 
so he was probably really wanting and thinking that he deserved that money. And if DNA evidence proved that he wasn't, why wouldn't the state declare his innocence? Possibly because it would cost them lots of money. Just listen to this. We checked to see how much money the Texas Comptroller's Office has paid out to people who were wrongfully convicted. From 1992 through the 2016 fiscal year, the state has paid out $69 million. In 2015, $2.7 million was paid, and that's about the same as in 2014. The Comptroller's Office says the money comes from the General Money Appropriations Fund. Something else happened in 2017 that is still ongoing and probably the most important update in this case. DNA found on one of the teens was sent to a lab for testing. Scientists used the same YSTR method that was used in 2009. Only this time, eight years had passed, and science had again advanced greatly. A match in the system came back, but local investigators had no access to the identity of that person. They just knew that there was a match in the system. The FBI, however, does have access to that identity. Austin authorities have been fighting for access to this person's identity. The reasons why the FBI can't hand over this information is kind of confusing, but it all boils down to the law. Apparently, investigators nationally have access to this database of DNA but they're not given access to the individual's identity. The DNA sample Austin police had was only a partial sample, so it technically can't identify a single suspect. It would just show all of that person's male relatives. The FBI's argument is that the number of men matching this DNA sample could be in the thousands, and that Austin police was overstating the importance of this new lead. So now there's a split between people saying, yes, let's use this method, and people arguing, no, this could implicate an innocent person, it's happened before, it's violating people's privacy, etc. Whatever side of the argument you're on, it's undeniable that genetic genealogy has been used to solve cold cases successfully. It actually was used to catch one of the most prolific serial killers in America, the Golden State Killer. In the 70s and 80s, he murdered at least 13 people and raped roughly 50 women in California. He wasn't caught until 2018, when he was in his 70s. And he was only caught because investigators used genetic genealogy and literally reverse-searched through a family tree. So, in conclusion, as of 2022, that's where the case stands. To my knowledge, there hasn't been any more updates but I'll definitely be keeping my eye on this one, and I firmly believe that it will be solved eventually, because of how far forensic science has advanced. One theory that I find interesting, and that's commonly talked about, is those late-night customers that Margaret and Tim saw before they left. A lot of people think those are the real killers. In a photograph taken by a journalist directly after the bodies were found, there's an interesting detail. The picture shows the booths inside. The two shady customers had been sitting in a booth closest to the cash register. The photo shows that every single napkin holder had been refilled, except for the one 
on that booth. Meaning, the girls never got to finish cleaning up that booth, so that could possibly indicate that those customers didn't leave. And as far as I know, they've never come forward. And it seems like every other person that was in that shop that night did come forward. I want to close this story out with some words from the Harbison sisters' mother, Barbara. She told this to a reporter in December of 1993, two years after the murders. Quote, There is a lot of good that will come from this tragedy if we allow it to. I believe that we can, as individuals, make a difference. We can help each other, support each other. We can take care of all the children so that no one's child falls through the cracks and ends up on the streets with a gun and a broken heart. Because that's where these things come from. Children that have not been loved enough or cared enough about in their lives. And I believe that we have the power to change this. With that in mind, I will continue that little crusade to save all the kids. I know that sounds optimistic and probably silly to a lot of people, but I think it's important that I remain optimistic. Because as long as there is hope, we will survive. End quote. The majority of this research came from an amazing 500-page book called Who Killed These Girls? The Unsolved Murders That Rocked a Texas Town, published in 2017 by Beverly Lowry. It is that long because it needed to be. There's so much information, and Lowry had access to all of it. The newspaper archives were also my best friend for researching this case, and I will have clippings of a bunch of those articles on my Patreon by the 4th. If you're a member, you'll see images and articles that were printed directly after the murders and for the next couple decades. I know I said I was launching my Patreon on August 23rd, but technically you can become a member now, and that is exactly what Taylor Chrisman did. So thank you, Taylor, for becoming a member. If you want a special thank you at the end of an episode and access to bonus content every month, a bunch more little stuff that I'm going to be trying out, then be like Taylor and head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecam. I think that's what it is. I'll leave it in the description below to make sure. I already have a 20-minute long Let's Not Meet episode that's never been heard before, and a bunch of images from the Richard Speck and Bell Gunnis cases. So if that's something you're interested in, then swing on over. I highly recommend downloading the Patreon app to your phone for easy access. That's what I like best. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.